Good afternoon, everyone. Um, first, I want to thank Mrs. Sperling and her husband for sponsoring today's um, event. I think Mrs. Sperling would have sponsored anything to get me out of her backyard. <laughs> Truth be told, I, I had a lot of ideas when I was younger about what I wanted to do, but most people don't readily welcome them from a seven-year-old. Um, but in any event, everything's good as it turns out, right? And I see so many people here that I don't recognize, which is a great thing. We have such a big community that I don't have to worry about boring people the last time so they don't come the next time. But for all of you who are here because my mother offered to pay you, she'll be back in town tomorrow. <laughs> so we're going to talk about today Bitochon and Amuna, which is a, a rich topic. It's a topic to which I don't mind saying, I don't mean to sound sexist, but that's what it's going to sound like. But it's a topic that women excel in over men. Uh, the Gemara talks about different kochos that were given to men and women when they were divided. Men and women were created together. Zachar Nukeva bara osam. We all know that. But they weren't divided equally when they were divided. For example, I'm not going to get too much into it, but it says that uh, Dea was given in 60 to 70 percent to men, 30 to 40 percent to women. Bina was given 70 percent more to women, 30 percent to men. Koch of Dibor may shock you to know that speech was given more to women also. The bottom line is, though, is that men and women were not divided equally when they were divided. There are certain things that women are far better than men in and certain things that men are far better than women in. When it comes to Amuna and Bitachon, women are near the top of the chart. Nevertheless, there's a lot about Amuna and Bitachon that we don't understand. The first thing we need to understand, and we'll go straight to the title of today's, today's talk, which is the lim limits of the human mind. There are certain things that we cannot understand. The best muscle for that, I guess, is the turtle in the box. You have a cardboard box with a turtle in it. He's born in that box. He's got a little log that he can crawl on with leaves in the box. And another turtle comes over to him and says, what do you think about that new carpeting they put in in the other room? <laughs> Turtle's never seen any carpeting. He has no idea what that means. And obviously there's crudeness to the muscle, but the bottom line is, is that we are to an extent in a box. And there's things that we can't understand because they're outside of our realm of perception and outside of our world of reality. You don't believe me? So we have a source sheet that we go to. I hope everyone got one. If you don't want to follow along with the source sheet, you don't need to. I don't have an extra one. I'm sorry. I only have the one. Okay. Oh, there are some in the back. Okay. Um, in any event, you don't need to follow along with the source sheet, but um, it makes me feel more scholarly when we put one together. So... Um, today's source sheet, though, we limited to Chumash because I'm a big believer that you can be scholarly in all types of things in Gemara and Halacha and all types of things, but you can never learn enough Chumash and enough Rashi. Everything you're ever, ever going to want to learn is there and would take ten lifetimes to somewhat master what's there. So all of our sources today are going to be Chumash sources. And our first source is just meant to convey the depth of what we don't understand and the fact that there's so much that we can't understand. So your first source is at the top of the page in Parsha Shlach, and this is by the story of the Meraglim. And I underlined the portions that are relevant. It says, Shlach lachon Hashim Eretz Kanaan, you should send people to spy out Eretz Kanaan for you, Asher Nino Yisrael, which I'm giving to you, B'nai Yisrael. Ish echad, ish echad, tishlachu. You should send one person from each Shevet. That's who you should send. And many of the commentators struggle because we all know that there's not a single word in Chumash which is extra. There's not a single word which is randomly chosen. And this Pasuk cries out for explanation. Ish echad, ish echad. 
Sen 1, Sen 1. Why does the Torah repeat itself? I don't even think they had diagnosed stuttering as an official disorder back then. But Ishechad, Ishechad, what is that all about? Why do we have to deal with that? Why does it say that? What is special about Ishechad? So the Mepharshim all struggled with this idea, and they say Moshe Rabbeinu suspected there was going to be trouble with the Meraglim. And in fact, there were. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, you know what? I'm going to rig the Meraglim. I'm going to sample and pick who I want to go so that it's less likely that there'll be a problem. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, let me look back at the history of the Shvatim and see whether I can glean some insight into why I should send this one and not send that one. And he said, well, a lot of trouble started between the Shvatim when Yosef told Lashon Hara and his brothers. So maybe I'll hold back from Shevet Yosef. And then he said, Yehuda lied to Yaakov Avinu when he said, look, it appears that Yosef was killed by a wild animal. So you see under certain circumstances that Shevet Yehuda has the ability to not tell the truth. Maybe we shouldn't send from Shevet Yehuda and Shevet Yosef. That was Moshe's cheshbon. And what would have happened? Shevet Yehuda was Kaleb, and Shevet Ephraim from Yosef was Yoshua. The two people that Moshe was going to hold back are Kaleb and Yoshua. With his brilliant mind, with his insight, with his nevuah, with his knowledge of everything that could happen, Moshe Rabbeinu's cheshbon was we should hold back Kaleb and Yeshua and send only the other ten. So Hashem said, no, Moshe, you've got to send Ishachad, Ishachad. You have to send one from every Shevet. Because Moshe, your das, the knowledge that you have from a human standpoint is limited. And the cheshbon that you have is completely opposite of what needs to happen. So you have to send one from every Shevet. That's the first most glaring thing where we see that even Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't understand the cheshbon of Shemayim. There's just no way. It can't be done. The second place we see it is the second source on the first page. It's from Parshas Toldos. The Torah is telling us that Rivka and Yitzchak are having trouble having children. So the Pasuk says in Pasuk Chafalaf, again, it's underlined for you, Vayetar Yitzchak Lashem. And Yitzchak cried out or beseeched Hashem. Rashi says on this part, on this Pasuk, it's underlined, but this print is a little bit too small for me to focus on right now. Rashi says that this Lashem of Vayetar is an unusual Lashem for Tefillah. Normally we have Vayis Palel, Vayivakesh, something of that something of that sort. But this Lashon of Vayetar, Rashi says, is an unusual, unusual word to use by tefillah. And he says that it connotes a tefillah which is almost unprecedented in duration and intensity. Basically, the picture that Rashi paints is that Yitzchak would not let up. He was davening with such an intensity and such a kavana and such a total preoccupation with this one singular focus and non-stop until his request was granted. And that's what Rashi says is the Lashon of Vayetar. Now that raises some significant questions. Why? We don't hear anything by Avram Avinu or by Yaakov Avinu that they had to be mispal in such a way. Yet, we do know that all of the Avas struggled with having children. Yaakov didn't struggle with having children with Leah, but he did struggle having children with Rachel. All of them had to be mispal for children. And the Gemara says that that was on account of the fact that Hashem, A, wanted to hear their tefillahs because their tefillahs were so precious to him, and B, because something that is denied for a period of time is that much more cherished when it comes. 
And Hashem wanted those things to be present in the case of all the Avos. Okay, that I understand. All the Avos had a reason why Hashem wanted to hear their tefillahs. But why Yitzchak, above all the others, had to come on to this Lashon of Vayetar? Why did he have to plead with such intensity and such ferocity and such intensity? Remember, Yitzchak was a carbon on Harabayas. He wasn't allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael because he had risen to such a level of Kedusha. We don't say that by Avram or Yaakov. They were all allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael from time to time. Lived significant periods of their lives in other places, not Yitzchak. Yitzchak was so cutter that he couldn't leave Eretz Yisrael. Yet, he had to be mispalo on such a level. He had to be mispalo more than Avram and more than Yaakov. Why? So this is even more profound than what Moshe Rabbeinu teaches us by Ishachad, Ishachad. Let's understand a little bit, and this is really nothing new for any of you. It's just putting together a couple of dots which we already knew and connecting them. We know that all the Avos were supposed to live to be 180 years old, but only Yitzchak did. Yaakov had some years taken off his life because he kept on using the word Adoni when he met Paro, and he was punished for that because it was inappropriate for him to refer to Paro as Adoni. Whatever that means, for whatever reasons it is, it corresponds to the amount of years that Yaakov Avinu had his life shortened. And why did Avram have his life shortened? Best way for people to participate is just shout out. Why did Avram have his life shortened five years? Does anybody remember? Exactly. So he shouldn't see Esav turn into a Russia. There was that magic day in Esav's life. It's a debate whether it was 13, 17, exactly how old he was. When he, create, when he committed this three cardinal sins on one day, Gila, Arias, Shvichas, Dhamma, and Avodah And in order to spare Avram Avinu the pain of seeing Esav become such a Russia, Hashem took him just before that event happened. And at that time he was 175 years old. So when Yitzchak is pleading to Shemayim, Hashem, let me have children. In Shemayim, there's a battle going on. Because Hashem says, how can I reject? How can I delay? How can I not immediately respond to Yitzchak's tefillahs? Yet on the other hand, in Shemayim, they knew that as soon as Yitzchak's tefillah was granted, Esav and Yaakov were going to be born. And the clock started ticking on Avram's life. And because Yitzchak's tefillahs could not be resisted because of the nature of their intensity and their perseverity, Avram had to die five years early. Because Shemayim could no longer resist Yitzchak's tefillahs. With everything he had, with all of his kedusha, with all of his intensity, with all of his relentlessness, Shemayim couldn't resist. And when they capitulated to Yitzchak's tefillahs, the clock started ticking, Esav and Yaakov were born, and in order to spare Avraham the pain of seeing Esav in such a way, Avraham had to die five years early. Powerful. That's what Vayetar is. The power of tefillah. The power of changing the way things are supposed to go. So we have to understand just from those first two places that we cannot understand all the things that are going on from a standpoint in our world. And number two, almost as importantly, we can't begin to understand the ramifications we sit there davening for a particular thing and we think it's real simple. Either Hashem says yes or He says no. It's not that simple. Even when He says yes, sometimes the ramifications are far more expansive than we could possibly imagine. And certainly when He says no, the ramifications equally are many times some things which we cannot understand. So the first thing... Yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, is, uh, you're not for davening too much or too intense. 
No, and Yitzchak's not criticized at all. And again, we're going to talk a little bit about that, about the ability of changing the course of the world with tefillah and in other manners. All we can do is our part. The cheshman of Shemayim is the cheshman of Shemayim. It is what it is. But since we can't know what everything is, all we can do is our part. And we're going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But the first thing I want you to take out of those first two sources is if someone comes up to you and he's got a PhD in climatology and he's got an MS in um, geology and all this kind of nonsense, or for that matter, if he's got the longest beard and the biggest hat you've ever seen, if either of those people tell you that the Holocaust happened because, just walk out of the room. If they tell you that Sandy destroyed all these people's houses because of X, Y, or Z, walk out of the room. We don't know. It's that simple. We may have an inkling of one thing. That doesn't change the fact that we can affect the world by being better people. And we can affect the world by doing things in a better way and being positive. But if someone starts telling you they know why, that's your clue that they really just have an agenda that they're trying to bring you to. They're not really trying to teach you anything. They're trying to coerce you into doing something for which they have zero foundation. Moshe didn't know. Yitzchak didn't know. We don't know. We just do the best that we can. So that's straight Amuna, And we're going to differentiate a little bit about the difference between Amuna and Bitochem. Because why have a shear called Amuna and Bitochem if they mean the same thing? But they don't. Straight Amuna is just simple faith. That Hashem is in control of the world. Hashem is aware and intricately involved in how things unfold in the world. Sometimes he chooses to let Teva go its natural course. Sometimes he chooses to make Nisim, which we don't even know about, behind the scenes happen so that something happens in a different way. And sometimes for people that are on a real Madrega or when there's a significant purpose in history, Hashem will do an open nace that people can see. But it doesn't change the fact of what Amuna is, which is the knowledge and the firm total belief that Hashem has complete control over the world. It's his world. And what happens, happens because it is his will. Now again, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but because it is his will does not mean it has to happen that way, that day, or that how. We're going to talk a little bit about that. The best muscle for that is this famous story with the helicopter, which most of you know about. You know, it's, it's the brilliant climatologist and the forecasters are telling people that there's going to be a massive flood and a hurricane's going to come through and the entire town is going to be underwater. So they order a mandatory evacuation. And this one guy says, my faith in God is pure. I will not leave. God will save me. And the waters come and people are evacuated. And a boat comes by from the Coast Guard and says, listen, you've got to leave. The waters are rising. He climbs up to the roof of his house and he says, you go on with your boat. My God will save me. And he's up at the top of the roof and the water's an inch away and finally the last rescue boat comes by and says, this is your last chance, get in. He says, no, my God will save me. The boat takes off. The last thing that happens is a helicopter comes and lowers a rope to him and says, get on, you're going to drown. He says, no, my God will save me. And he drowns. He comes up to Shemayim and Hashem says, he says to Hashem, why didn't you save me? My faith was pure. He says, what do you mean save you? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Sometimes you have to be willing to accept what Hashem offers B'derach Hatzeva. So does that mean we have to accept simply what Kohelis says? Hakol Hevel? We are all puppets on a string. 
It doesn't matter what we do. Hashem has a plan. And whatever He wants to happen is going to happen. No. And that takes us to the difference between emuna and bitachon. This is not in your source sheet because it involves a Gemara and I wanted to keep the source sheets the pure Chumash. But everybody knows at the end of Sefer Shmos, Moshe Rabbeinu was sent to Paro. I'm sorry, Parsha Shmos. Moshe Rabbeinu was sent to Paro and Hashem says to him, go tell Paro I'm bringing everybody out of Mitzrayim. Let him go. And Moshe goes and what happens? Paro says, not only am I not letting them go, I'm increasing their work. We're not going to give them straw anymore to make bricks. They'll have to make their own straw and they'll have to make their own bricks and the amount that they'll have to make will not change. They're going to have to work harder. And Moshe says to Hashem in the last Pesach of Parsha Shmos, what did you do? Everything's worse. Why did you send me to do such a thing and make things worse for B'nai Yisrael? And the Gemara says Moshe was punished for this because it was a lack of bitachah. Not a lack of amuna, but a lack of bitachah. And what's really interesting is what Hashem says in the first Pasuk of Vayera. Hashem says to Moshe, I don't have the sheet right in front of me, but you look at the first Pasuk in Shmos, and Hashem says to him, you're not as pure as Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They believed in me. Really? Moshe Rabbeinu? How many Gemaras and Mepharshim tell us that Moshe was on the highest madrega of any human being, even the Avos? Mi Moshe le Moshe le Navi ki Yisrael, right? No Navi ever was on Moshe Rabbeinu's madrega. No one knew Hashem spoke to him uh, mouth to mouth, face to face, like Moshe Rabbeinu did. So how can you say, how could Hashem say that you're not even on the level of the Avos? And the Gemara says that Hashem is referring to Bitachon. Moshe Rabbeinu was the epitome of Amunah. Moshe Rabbeinu knew Hashem like nobody else. But what did the Avos know? The Avos knew that Hashem was going to do what was right by them. Hashem says He's going to send them for the Shiva of Mitzrayim. Hashem says you're going to have to endure certain suffering. But in the end, there'll be a Geula. The Avos didn't say, but I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to benefit from it. I'm not going to be here. For the Avos, it was enough. Because they believed that in the end, Hashem was going to make it right. It was going to be good for them. Moshe Rabbeinu's Amunah was pure. He knew that Hashem was responsible for Paro making the work harder. And he knew that Hashem could have made it otherwise. But his bitachon wasn't on the level of the Avos. And the Gemara says he was punished for that. The simple thing we have to take out first is this idea of tefillah. Tefillah makes a difference. A big difference. Vayetar Yitzchak. Yitzchak's tefillah on a level of intensity and a level of relentlessness that was unprecedented changed the course of the world as to when people would be born and to when people would die. The tefillah makes a difference. Now again, I want to let's take this as morsel number two, and I can't wait to get the hate mail on this one. But anyway, morsel number two, when we talk about tefillah, let's not talk about Shachris, Mincha, and Marv. Everybody's busy and they wake up in the morning and like they look at the daunting thing that we call chakras. I don't have half an hour. I've got carpools and I've got this and I've got that. When we talk about tefillah, we're talking about communicating to Hashem. Okay? This book, this sitter, was written a thousand years after the Jews became a people. Many of the tefillahs have specifically asking Hashem to bring the geula and date after Chorban Bayashani. In fact, most of them do. Tefillah means talking to Hashem. 
And if you don't have 30 seconds in the morning to talk to Hashem, can't help you. Everybody's got 30 seconds. Again, I hate to say it. One second. I hate to say it. Do it a red light if you don't have any other time. But take 30 seconds out of your morning and talk to Hashem. First, the order of the sitter, it's no chiddush here, talk to him about what you're grateful for. Are you grateful for family? Are you grateful for brachos? Are you grateful for the comforts? What are you grateful for in your life? 30 seconds each morning to thank Hashem for that. Is that too much? 30 seconds? And then 30 seconds if you have bakashos or things which you would like to be a little bit different or things which could be better in your life. It's a total of a minute. Don't look in the sitter if you don't have time. Okay? But tefillah doesn't mean reading every word that's in the sitter, particularly if you don't understand what you're reading. Tefillah means communicating with Hashem. Do you have 60 seconds in the morning to communicate with Hashem? And for the real righteous people among us, maybe an additional 60 seconds in the afternoon. It's a lot, but if you can squeeze those two minutes out, it's very meaningful. You can change the world. You can change when people are born. You can change when people die. Two minutes a day. That's it. Tefillah. Tefillah is huge. And we learn it from Yitzchak. I'm sorry, do you have a question? No, you, you just said that uh, I, I learned from Rabbi, one of the rabbis here that uh, if a woman doesn't have time to daven, they can certainly daven on the way to carpool. Well, don't, don't ever tell him that I said the same thing because it'll kill his day. But anyway, bottom line is tefillah makes a difference. Yes, you do. And according to many deus, moda'ani counts as tefillah. But when you say moda'ani, do you know what the words mean? And do you think about what the words mean? Are you thanking Hashem for your neshama being brought back to you in the morning and refreshed? That's, that's big. It's not small, it's big. And that's what it's about. And you talk about this, and we go on to our, if you turn the page to our second source, we'll talk about a little bit of some, another enigma. This enigma that it appears from several places in Chumash that although Hashem is almighty and all-powerful and could do anything He wants, for some reason, He cares what we do and He cares what we think. Why? I don't know. It's the subject of another shear. What I do know is that he does care. And I don't know it because I figured it out. I know it because the psukim tell me so. Go to Hazinu, the top of the second page. The end of Pasuk Zion, which is underlined. Pen yomru, yadenu rama, velo Hashem pa'al kolzos. Hashem saying, Moshe Rabbeinu is telling B'nai Yisrael that Hashem is going to get tired of the Averus. He's going to get tired of the rebellion. And he's going to scatter you amongst the people. And he's going to be ready to destroy you. Pen yomru yodenu rama. But Hashem's going to say, they're going to think that they were the ones who destroyed B'nai Yisrael. They're going to think that their armies did it. Below Hashem Paul calls us, and it wasn't Hashem that brought this upon them. Hashem doesn't want the umos ha'olam, the nations of the world, to think that they have some role in destroying B'nai Yisrael. What does he care? I don't know, but he does. And that's not the only place. This is one of three places where we are told specifically that Hashem cares what we think and He cares what we do and He cares what we say. 
The second place we see it is in Kisisa, after the Cheta Egel. And again, it's underlined for you about two-thirds down the paragraph. Lama Yomru Mitzrayim Lamar. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling Hashem, don't do this. Don't destroy them for the Egel. Because what are the Mitzrayim going to say? He killed them in the mountains because they were evil, because they were bad. We don't want Mitzrayim to say that it's because of they were, were unprepared to deal with the Midbar that you killed them. That you weren't able to carry out your word and take them to Eretz Yisrael. What is Moshe saying? This is his best fila to Hashem? What are the Mitzrayim going to say? Like we've got some great love and respect for the Mitzrayim? Who cares what the Mitzrim say? The answer is, Hashem cares what the Mitzrim say. Again, I don't know why, but He does. The third source, same thing, after the Meraglim, the bottom of the second page. Eshimachalemar, those who hear what happened will say, Mi bilti yecholas Hashem, lahavi esam hazeh, esa'aras asher nishbalahem. Hashem wasn't able to bring them to the land that He promised them. Vayishachetam b'midbar, so He slaughtered them in the desert. Again, the same tefillah to Hashem. What's going to happen if you destroy B'nai Yisrael on account of the Meraglim, on account of their not wanting to go into Eretz Yisrael? The nations of the world are going to say that you were not able to bring them into Eretz Yisrael and that's why you killed them in the Midbar. Why do we care? I don't know, but we do. We care. Hashem cares what people think. He cares what people say and He cares how we act. Did you ever wonder why the media is so bent on portraying the Israeli army as being barbaric? We can go door to door in a refugee camp to make sure that we don't have any more collateral damage than is absolutely necessary, but the media will portray it as barbaric of going into the refugee camp. Yet the United States, the great moral country of the world, can drop a bomb anywhere they want to, in Iraq, Iran, anywhere they want to, and it's collateral damage. It's just something we accept. Does it make any sense? Of course not. Why are the Arabs so intent on going to the UN on every possible occasion? and saying the Jews are immoral, they're guilty of war crimes. Because what we do matters. Our job is to show that we understand what Hashem wants. We do act a different way because we do understand that what we do matters. They can't stand that more than anything. No, there's no God that we have to follow. There's no moral code that we have to listen to. We can do what we want and they can do what they want. But this false persona that the Jews are somehow special, that they're moral, that they're God's light in the world, that we need to debunk at every possible opportunity. Because that makes us uncomfortable with this idea that we have some greater morality that we have to follow. The point, though, is not only about tefillah. Tefillah is a step. But there's a second step that makes a difference, and that's actions. We know that what we do makes a difference. In some ways, you could argue that what we do makes a much bigger difference. The difference, though, is that, Shema, is that tefillah connects us to Shemayim. It actively asks Shemayim to intercede, to intervene on our behalf, whereas actions actually do it right here in our world themselves. There are those who say, though, that actions are actually doubly powerful because actions not only cause a difference in this world, 
But when Hashem sees us emulating His behavior and doing things the way He wants them to be done with kindness and compassion and things of that nature, which are all through the Torah, about that's the way you're supposed to act, that it does a double thing. It acts as a tefillah and an action. So an action has even a double, double power. But our jobs, whether it's through tefillah or through Hashem, our purpose here is to be Makad Hashem Shemayim. Hashem didn't need a world, doesn't need us, but it brings whatever you want to call it, um, I hate to use the word joy, pleasure, because none of those things apply to Hashem, but Hashem likes it, He appreciates it, it makes the world a better place to see His creations following His ways and creating good, and doing good. And when we do those things, it makes a difference. And when we do those things, we're Makata Shem Shemayim. We tell people that we are the people of Hashem. And because of that, we act a certain way. That is the greatest Kiddush Hashem of being Makata Shem Shemayim. When we act a certain way because we believe that we're supposed to do things a certain way. Paro, understand, Paro understood this difference between Emuna and Bitachon. It's really kind of interesting. You read the beginning of of uh, Era, when Paro decrees that the children should be thrown into the water. And what did the Mepharshim say? Why did he choose that particular form of death? It would have been much easier to kill the children in any one of a number of ways. Why throwing them in the water? So the Mepharshim say that Paro knew that Hashem had made a covenant never to drown the people of the world again. There was never going to be another Mabel. And he also knew that Hashem acts measure for measure, Mida, Keneg, and Mida. So Paro figured, hey, if I throw the kids in the water and they drown, then the logical punishment would be to bring a mabel. But Hashem promised he wouldn't do that again. So that's the best way to go about this. I'm going to tie Hashem's hands. He had a muna, that Hashem was all-powerful and could do what he wanted. But he also knew that Hashem had promised never to bring a mabel again. What Paro lacked was bitachon. He didn't understand that Hashem has a cheshben, Hashem has a plan, and Paro is not going to thwart it. Paro, though, is the real lesson that we're going to get to next. Because we all talked about this lushan of Vayetar Yitzchak. How powerful that tefillah was. None of us can even imagine how powerful that tefillah was. And how relentless and how ongoing day after day it was until Shemayim finally said, yes, we're going to allow Asa and Yaakov to be born earlier than planned. And consequently, Avram Avinu is going to die earlier than planned. We don't know how powerful that tefillah was. We do know that Rashi says, Vayetar is not something you mess around with. It's a powerful word. And Rashi says, Mishle and Yecheskel, he brings it down in that underlined Rashi on the first page of your source seat. He says, there's another place where they use this lushan of Vayetar. It's such an unusual language. And in those two places, you can see what it means of unrelentless propensity and intensity. It's a bit of a question why Rashi says that, and we're going to talk about that now, because Rashi is the, the big cheese. You know, we have a lot of Mepharshim we learn about from, but Rashi knew it all. But apparently there was a reason that Rashi didn't want to talk about Moshe Rabbeinu and Paro, because this Lashon of Yetar shows up many times in Parshas Vaera and Bo. Not Vayispalel, not Vayivakesh. If you turn to the third page of your source sheet, there's a lot of sukkim. I just underlined the ones that we're going to touch on. But if you look halfway down the third, halfway down the page 
in the first column in Parshas Ve'era, Pasuk Dalad. Vayomer ha'atiru al Hashem. Paro says to Moshe, stop this Maka of Sephardea. It's ruining the land. It's invading my palace. But Rashi doesn't say anything here about the intensity and the relentlessness. He doesn't say anything about it at all. Apparently here, this Lashon of Ayatar is not so unusual. Now, I'm going to say this only for dramatic effect. But I hope the effect is legitimate. But maybe Rashi forgot this one? Right. Well, somebody might say that, except two lines later, I will daven for you. He didn't miss it twice. And then go a little further down. I'm sorry. And then the second column, two thirds of the way down. Another time. And the second line after that. And two lines after that. Where's Rashi? In Toldos, we're told this Lushan is so unusual, it's so incredible, intense, it's so persevering. Five times in Vaira doesn't seem to make a, a dent in what Rashi wants to say. And you look on the next page of the source sheet. Three quarters of the way down. Ha'atiru el Hashem again by the Makos. Turn the page again. And you have it two-thirds of the way down. Vatiru Hashem elokechem. And then the line after that. Hashem. This is an onslaught. This is not one place where Rashi forgot. You can't miss it. I caught it. If I caught it, Rashi saw it in his sleep. What's going on? Well, before we really go crazy about the fact that, okay, Vayetar must be a very common Lushan that's used all the time. Perhaps Rashi was getting older. I don't know. But let's, let's, be, let's get down, back down to earth for a second and realize that this Lushan of Vayetar... I'm unaware of any other place in the Chumash that it appears. In Vaera and Bo, there's an onslaught during the Makas, but nowhere else. Vayispalel, Vayivakesh, but not Vayetar, and not Heetarti. There's something special going on here by the Makas. And I underlined a few of those things to highlight it for you. Many of you are probably familiar with the idea that in Parshas Vaera and Bo, Hashem actively took Teva out of Paro's hands at some points. And it says, Vayachazek Hashem eslave Paro. Hashem hardened his heart because Hashem had decided Paro had done enough. He had earned the Gezerah that was coming his way. But now that that Gezerah was coming to Paro and his people, he was going to use this opportunity to make a proclamation for all time that Hashem rules the world and that B'nai Yisrael are his people. So to an extent, he took away Paro's Bechira. And many times it says in the Pesukim, Vayichazek Hashem eslave Paro. But it doesn't say it all the time. And it doesn't say it by every Makkah. And many of the Mepharshim ask, well, why does it say it here? But it doesn't say it there. And sometimes it says, Paro, hichbir libo. And sometimes it says, Hashem hardened his heart. It's a fascinating thing about this Vayetar Lashon that shows up in the Makkahs. Each time it says Vayetar, and I count seven altogether by four different makas, because again, there's sometimes it says it twice. There's four makas where it says it. Those are the four times that it doesn't say Hashem Chazek Aslipo. Because when Paro was suffering from a breach of Teva, 
Miracles were being thrown in his face to teach him a lesson. He understood that Teva was being affected. And Vayetar, he cried out and he persevered because he wanted a change of Teva. Stop. Stop what's going on now. Change it. This is not something you can be mispalo for. This is not something you can be mivakesh for. You can't request and you can't daven for. It's not enough. You need vayetar. You have to beseech. You have to entreat with perseverance, with intensity. That maybe a day isn't enough. Maybe the 60 seconds by the red light isn't enough. If you want to change the course of history, it calls for something more. And that's what was going on by Paro. When does he not say Vayetar to Moshe Rabbeinu and ask him to beseech Hashem on his behalf? When it says Hashem Mechazek Eslibo. Every place it says Hashem hardened his heart, Paro wasn't acting like a rational person anymore. He wasn't beseeching Hashem. No. Hashem's interfering with his Bechira, so he's not beseeching Hashem anymore. He's not requesting anything because his Bechira has been taken away. I'm not going to go through line by line with you, but the sources are here. You can do it. It's a fascinating thing about this Lashon of Vayetar. So again, we not only have the fact that there is a Teva in place, which Hashem has put in place to rule the world on a daily basis. Hashem reserves the right at any time to interfere and to change the laws of Teva without our knowledge most of the time. Sometimes, if someone's on the madrega of a nase nigla, Hashem will openly interfere with the world's teva and create a nase. And sometimes it's something in between, like a scud missile goes into an apartment building, but no one's there that moment. Okay, everyone sees the miracle that a scud hit an empty apartment building that normally has 250 people living in it, but we don't see a scud hitting a person, exploding, and the person not dying. That's a little bit more open. Okay? There are madregas. So Hashem always retains the right to control Teva, change Teva, make open miracles or hidden miracles. But there's this other, other heightened Lashon of Vayetar where we can beseech Hashem to actually create Nisan. And it's happened. We've done it. Not always so distant past. Um, I, I mentioned this um, a few months ago when I spoke here. But there's only one time in my life that I remember... All of B'nai Yisrael standing shoulder to shoulder, davening for a single purpose. It didn't matter whether you had a strimal on or a kippah srogah or no yarmulke at all. People of all different parts of Yiddishkeit were together in a common purpose. And that was when the chemical attacks we thought were coming in the Scud missiles on Israel in 1982 during the first Iraq war. And I went out to shul and I saw people of all different types standing next to each other all pleading that what we feared happened wasn't going to happen. And it didn't. And my mother told me that wasn't the only time. She said in 1967 she remembers the same thing. When all was thought lost and Israel was going to lose the war, there was no hope. All people got gathered together again. And the course of history was changed. We can do it. We have done it. When we beseech, when we get to that language of vayetar, anything is truly possible. Yes? Um, you make me think of, um, my brother had a very bad accident, and he was in a coma for 20 days. And I told my friends and some people, and they told other people I didn't even know. And there was prayer going on up and down the East Coast. Sure. And my brother came out of his coma 
And uh, a rabbi, good friend of my son, when I told him the story, said the power of prayer. That's right. And I do believe that. It's a special story, and I'm sure there's many people in here, believe it or not, everyone thinks they have a special story, but these stories are more common than you can imagine. Stories where tefillah makes a difference. But understand what we talked about before, about Yitzchak. Sometimes when Hashem says no, it's not just because the answer is no, it's because we can't possibly fathom the other ramifications of what's going on. And that brings me to the next point I want to make. And that's, again, the difference between Emunah and Bitachah. And this is what Paro missed. Paro understood Emunah. He understood that Hashem ruled the world. What he missed was this idea of Bitachah. Bitachon, and this is an essential, essential point, and I'm going to drive it home with the story. This is a true story. Many of you remember the Rashiva of Weinberg of Ner Yisrael. He died of an illness and he had warning that it was coming. His family had warning that it was coming. He faced death like most people cannot. When people would come and cry in the waiting room around his bedside, his family members, he would honestly say, why are they crying? He didn't understand. This is what Hashem has for me right now. And to drive the point home, he has a daughter who lives in Atlanta. She's the Rebetzin there. And his daughter calls him about three months before he passed away. She's very upset. Her father was the rock in her life, the person that her and her husband called on for advice, as many people in the city did. Someone who saw things with total clarity. What would she do without him? And she called him and she said, Ta, I have a woman in my community with a problem. He said, what's the problem? He says, her father is very ill. She doesn't know what to do for him. So Weinberg, of course, understood the message. And he said to his daughter, let me ask you a question. This woman in your community, does she love her father? He says, she loves him very much. Does the father love her? She thinks that he loves her very much. You have to understand, Hashem loves them both even more. Digest that. Because that's what Bitochen is. Bitochen is not just that Hashem is in charge of the world. Bitochen is that whether we see it or not, whether we understand it or not, Hashem loves us and does what's best for us. The Avos understood that. And that's why Moshe was criticized as being on the high level of Amuna, but not approaching the Avos when it came to Bitachon. The Avos didn't care that they weren't going to see Eretz Yisrael. Maybe they cared. But they didn't view that as a chesaron and Hashem's brachos to them. Their faith was so pure that the result was good. And that's what it meant for them. That's what Bitachon means. It's different than Amuna. Amuna is recognition of dominion. It's recognition that Hashem controls everything that goes on in the world. Does he leave it to Teva? Yes. Can we alter Teva with Tefillah? Yes. Can we change life and death with Vayetar? Yes. But Hashem controls the world. Bitachon, though, is a whole different thing. Bitachon is understanding that whatever Hashem does is for our good, even if we never understand it. Like Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't understand why he had to send Yoshua and Kalev. Some things are beyond the box. They're beyond our ability to comprehend, our ability to understand. The Rambam says our ability to control things is more profound than you can imagine.
the Rambam entertains the question. Maybe this is all preordained. We're rats in a maze. We're puppets on strings. How do we know? Obviously, Hashem has a plan for the world. Why bother? Why would what we do would make any difference? And the Rambam categorically rejects this notion, not because he decided it didn't make sense, although he decided it didn't make sense too, because he said, what's the idea of schar and onish? How can you be punished and have reward for things that don't make any difference and things are going to happen the same way anyway? But the Rambam didn't approach things that way. He says it doesn't make any sense for the world to operate in a preordained way, but he proves it. Again, from where? From Sukkim. And the Rambam brings over a dozen very powerful proofs to this idea that things are not preordained, but just a couple. When Hevel kills Cain, I'm sorry, when Cain kills Hevel, Hashem says to Cain, all the bloods, plural, of your brother are crying out from the ground. And Rashi says, what's called the May? What are all the bloods? Cain killed one person. What's the plural? He says, all the descendants that were supposed to come out of Hevel were complaining to Hashem that they were never born. So the Rambam says, who are we talking about? Obviously, these people were never meant to be born. There were no such people because Hevel was killed. So who's crying out? But for the Rambam, one proof isn't enough. He goes through more and more. He goes, Ruvain says to the brothers, don't throw Yosef into the pit. He says, why? Because if we kill him, we are taking matters into our own hands. We're changing the course of the world. If we throw him in the pit, it's up to Hashem whether a snake bites him or not, because animals don't have free choice. Animals don't get to change the course of the world because of their own intelligent decisions. Animals do what they're told and do things based on their teva. And finally, he says, Moshe Rabbeinu. What had happened before Moshe Rabbeinu kills the Mitzri? It says he looked into the future generations and saw that no good person was ever going to come out of this Mitzri and they went and killed him. Well, we know Moshe was a Navi. But we're not talking about Navua here. Navua is when you see something before it happens. Moshe was permitted to see things that never happened because these people were never born. He killed the Mitzri. So what did Hashem allow him to see? An alternate reality that could have happened had he not killed this Mitzri. The Rambam brings this as proof positive that there are people that are not born because of decisions that we make. There are people that die because of decisions that we make. As human beings, we have that power. Hashem gave it to us. We have to use it in the right way. But don't think for a second that what we do doesn't matter. Now that's an extreme example where Moshe kills somebody and because of that a chain of people aren't born. Where Cain kills somebody and because of that entire lineage from Hevel never happens. But it happens on a micro level too. Everything we do, every small act of chesed has ripple effects. You don't know when you compliment somebody on what they're wearing that they go home with a smile on their face and that changes their attitude through the day. And conversely, if you say a negative word to somebody, how that alters their mood and maybe makes them not eat properly that day, who knows what it is. Everything has ripple effects, and what we do makes a very big difference. The bottom line is, our actions matter. I'll ask you to go to the last page of the source sheet now. Perhaps this is not drawn any more tightly than it is in Hallel, when we say lo lono. Well, Lano, you know, it's kind of the orphan part of Hala. We only say it sometimes. And you know what? Lolano is in Shacharis. Not everybody's there by then. There's not a lot of great songs that go with Lolano because we only say it some of the time. Lolano is a powerful tefillah from Tehillim. 
Just the first four words. Lo lanu Hashem lo lanu. Not for us, Hashem. Not for us. Ki l'shimcha tein kavod. For you. For you. Where have we heard this before? By Hazinu. And by Kisisa. And by the Miraglim. For you, Hashem. For kavod shem shemayim. That's why you should do it. Not for us. That's what it's all about. And so how do we say to do that? Simple. We recite all the things that the Gayim rely on. They have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear, etc. But we say, Yisrael betach b'ashem. Yisrael has bitachon. We know. We know. Even if we don't understand. We know that everything is for the good. Ezra magidam hu. Hashem is our strength and he's our shield. Strength and shields? Who needs strength and shields? Everything's preordained, remember? No, it's not. Strength matters. Strength conquers. Shields protect. Those are all things that are out there for the asking. But you've got to ask. Yisrael betach b'ashem, Ezra mumaginam hu. But again, lo lanu, Hashem lo lanu. Not for us. Just to be Hashem shemayim. And that's the barometer. The barometer has to be for everything we do, does this make the world a better place the way Hashem would want it to be? If the answer is yes, then it's a good thing to do. And if the answer is no, it's not. It's not that complicated. Sometimes it's difficult, but it's not complicated. So let's take four things out from today. First, we have to accept as part of Amuna, a cornerstone of Amuna, that there are some things that we cannot understand. Our Amuna cannot be shaken because something happens that we don't understand. It is the nature of who we are. There are some things that don't make sense to us and some things we cannot understand. To an extent, we're in a very large cardboard box. Second, Hashem loves us. What He does, He does because it's better for us. That's part of Bitachon as opposed to Amuna. Third, what we do makes a difference. We're not puppets on a string. We can change when people live, when people die, when people are born, and everything much smaller than that. We do make a difference, and what we do makes a difference. Everything from the time we wake up in the morning till the moment we get at night. Every word we utter, every deed we do, it makes a difference. Some things make a bigger difference than others, but what we do makes a difference. How we talk to people makes a difference. How we act towards people make a difference. And finally, understanding the degree of that difference. We have the ability, like Kayan, like Ruvain, and like Moshe Rabbeinu, to change the world. We change the way things happen. Let's take those four things out of today. The idea that our Amuna is unshakable, even when things happen that we cannot understand. And two, that we understand that no matter what happens, it's because Hashem loves us. And that our job here is to take Hashem's mitos of love and spread it around. It may sound corny, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. Last thing, I just want to thank Wit for making these beautiful days of eons so we all can get together and learn. Um, it's a very positive thing that everybody would have probably been doing something else today, but probably things of a less constructive level. It's a very wonderful thing, and I'm grateful to them for it. And finally, I want to thank the Schwartz family for giving us a beautiful base medrash where we can sit in comfort and enjoy these shiurim in a proper venue. Thank you. Thank you.